Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast, where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your hosts, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Ed. Hope you are. I am doing good. Good. Well, you know, we have news this afternoon with the Attorney General of New York releasing an investigation into Andrew Cuomo's activities. And have some audio from back in March where he was asked about this with a station up there. And this is what he said then. There are now two reviews underway. No one wants them to happen more quickly and more thoroughly than I do. Let them do it. Let the review proceed. I'm not going to resign. I was not elected by the politicians. I was elected by the people. Part of this is that I am not part of the political club. And you know what? I'm proud of it. Well, there's some irony that he says he's not part of the political club after he's been governor for 11 years. And before that, he was lieutenant governor. Before that, he was attorney general. And before that, he was I think Clinton's uh, DH, uh, DHHS secretary, Definitely. and of course his father was governor for over a decade. So that's, there's some irony that he's not part of the political club. But when he said, hey, do the investigation, let's get the facts out, I wonder if he still feels that way today. I doubt it. Uh, he took umbrage with the facts as found by the attorney general and filed an 85-page written response uh, later this afternoon uh, setting forth his position, um, and he has promised to hire an expert, quote-unquote, who will uh, instruct uh, New York State executive branch employees, including the governor, uh, as to how they should behave in an office setting and also to help them come up with some new and better policies to deal with sexual harassment in the workplace. Well, you know, I heard the Attorney General Letitia James press conference today, and I guess they had some outside investigators involved also, and I thought it was damning. It was so specific and so uh, so many examples of absolutely outrageous conduct. Yes, and, and, and the, they did have outside lawyers who were deputized by the Attorney General um, to conduct the investigation and um, the, uh, you know, big-time white-stocking white uh New York City, Wall Street type uh, law firms, and um, uh, it's it's bad for the governor of the state of New York. It's I don't know how you survive politically. Perhaps you do, um, but I don't know how. Well, and on top of that, uh, President Biden came out today and said he should resign. That's right, and the entire uh, New York State congressional delegation. So I don't know how he survives either unless he just kind of waits it out and, and hopes he's got enough friends left in the uh, legislature of New York such that he won't be impeached. The Democrats are control, correct? That's correct, both houses. And, and I think Cuomo had already uh, at least made some noise that he wanted to run for a fourth term uh, when this when this term is over. That seems clearly out of the question. Yeah, he, he was raising money and— uh was certainly making noises about running for a fourth term, uh, which in and of itself is somewhat um, problematic. Four terms in offices, in my opinion, too many. Uh, 
In this case, it's three too many or four too many. It's four too many. Uh, but he, he certainly is a career politician. So to say that he's not in the political club is uh, somewhere between dishonest and disingenuous, I guess, depending on your opinion of his uh, what he actually meant. And he, I guess what he could say is that he's been such a jerk to all kinds of folks in the state of New York and elsewhere that he's not considered in the club. Uh, but that's certainly not the impression that most uh, people who hear his his comments would take from that. No, and I, I don't know how he survives, but I would say that I hope this doesn't distract from what is the real story, which is the deaths of thousands of elderly New Yorkers on his watch and then his administration's efforts to cover it up with the uh, Trump administration and then subsequently with the Biden administration. That's right. And the Biden administration has has put the kibosh on the investigation of uh, re- with regard to um, the deaths in the nursing homes. As I understand it, there is an ongoing FBI investigation with regard to the cover-up and sending false data to to uh, the CDC and the NIH uh, with regard to, to COVID in New York. And there is also an ongoing investigation, and it may be by state authorities, with regard to uh, – the impact of the cover-up and his getting the $5.1 million advance on his book. Um, and, and that could be federal, too. I, 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 I'm not sure about how all that plays out. But supposedly those investigations are still are still going, going on. Um, so he has a number of issues he needs to deal with. Uh, I think if I were advising him, I, I would be telling him that he needs to work out a deal where he, he uh, resigns and and rides off into the sunset. Well, that might be the best he could hope for at this point. Yeah. The other big story that I thought we, we should talk about this week has to do with this issue between the state of Texas and the U.S. Department of Justice. And I think we kind of have to set this up just for a bit because um, I do have some audio here from the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, with what he has attempted to do. But just to let the listener know, he has put in place an executive order which purports to limit federal immigration authorities from moving uh, people that they've intercepted at the border or internally in Texas from moving them around through Texas in certain ways. I don't know if I'm saying that in the best way. Is that your understanding? Yes, they're not allowed to move them um, because because any movement – once they're in Texas, which is probably most people have seen on the Internet or the news, they're coming across the border in droves every night, uh, surrendering to the Border Patrol. The Biden administration is putting them on airplanes and buses and various things and taking them to, to certain locations, both within Texas and without. Um, and this, this uh, order from the governor would prevent any movement of these people in the state of Texas. So essentially they, they'd have to stay where they're, where they cross and can't be housed somewhere as the way I understand it. So I'm not sure what that means when they're literally at the rural border site, but so be it. Well, and as a, as a practical matter, I believe that his executive order directs state troopers or other state law enforcement officials, if they intercept a vehicle and have uh, reasonable cause to believe that there are illegal immigrants in it, that they're to return them to the nearest port or back to border control facilities. And I did see where um, there are 
like a thousand uh, illegal immigrants who had been were being housed for some period of time. I don't know whether it was overnight or for what by the Biden administration or the Border Patrol folks under a bridge and an overpass in Texas. Um, and I, th- I don't think that was caused by the order of the governor, but I don't know that. No, I don't believe it was either. And there's some incredible footage out there. If, if people haven't seen it, uh, Bill Malugin, who's a reporter with Fox News, has some drone footage and it's a bridge near Mission, Texas. And, and literally hundreds and hundreds <coughs> of people camped underneath this bridge while traffic's flowing over the top of them. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like something out of a movie. Uh, there's other footage of uh, some hotels in one city there and buses just coming up about every 30 minutes and just disgorging people there. Uh, but before we get too much further, let's hear exactly what Governor Abbott said about it. I've authorized the Texas National Guard to perform law enforcement functions. Up until now, they have been assisting uh, the Texas Department of Public Safety. They've been assisting in the process of clearing the land and getting the land ready for the border wall, as well as other activities like that. However, because of manpower needs, uh, we need to have the National Guard not just engaged to assist, but to engage to arrest uh, that will lead to the jailing of the people who are coming across the border illegally. Now, on top of that, what you just talked about, my new executive order today, this stems from uh, what Sarah was talking about, but what happened yesterday uh, in La Jolla, Texas, uh, where it was learned uh, that migrants who had been released uh, by Border Patrol, they were in La Jolla, found at a Whataburger uh, with extreme signs of illness. Uh, and they themselves said they had COVID-19. And then it was learned there was a hotel full of people with COVID-19. And that's exactly why I issue this executive order that does a couple of things. One is it is, empowers the Texas Department of Public Safety to stop any vehicle where there is a suspicion uh, that that vehicle may be transporting migrants into and around the state of Texas who may have COVID-19. And second, it orders uh, the Department of Public Safety to return that vehicle uh, to either the point of origin, which would be where the uh, 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 Border Patrol officers let them go, or to the port of entry. And so I have a job to protect the safety and health of the people of the state of Texas, and that includes especially now preventing President Biden from importing COVID-19 into Texas as well as into to the United States. So he was pretty clear about the impact of COVID on his state. But let's talk about how this played out, because that was about a week ago that, that was. Uh, that was right after he signed the executive order. And then the attorney general of the U.S. sent a letter to him. And that letter said in part that this order violates federal law in numerous respects It said the supremacy supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution says a state may not interfere with or obstruct federal officials in the performance of their duties and that Texas has no authority to interfere with the United States broad, undoubted power over the subject of immigration. Now, Abbott responded to that and he acknowledged that uh, there was authority with the federal government. But he said that the Constitution and laws of the United States and of Texas empower me, that's Abbott as governor, to protect the health and safety of Texans. Your actions combined with the actions and omissions of the Biden administration directly conflict with my authority as governor and candidly conflict with the duty and obligation imposed on the Biden administration to apply and enforce immigration laws. So the U.S. government responded by filing a lawsuit. And that lawsuit says in part that the supremacy clause of the Constitution mandates 
that this Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, shall be the supreme law of the land. And ultimately, USDOJ's position is that the state can't do anything because it's a federal role in immigration. So that, that's the big legal issue here, I think, has to do with the supremacy clause. Just thinking about that issue sort of opens a number of cans of worms. You know, one, can the federal government claim, they claim to have preempted the, the field when they're clearly not enforcing the immigration laws that are on the books. There's, and, and this is, uh, you know, going back a number of years, but as I recall, in regards to the preemption uh, line of cases, it's, it, there's, there's several different types of preemption. You know, there's complete, and then there's, and that's not the right term, but then there's like a hybrid where it's sort of kind of uh, preempted and states are limited in what they can do, but they can still do certain things. And then there are certain areas where the federal government has not done enough to, to have prevented the states from taking action. So all that is, is an issue. Um, and then uh, as, <clears throat> as you were touching on, um, you know, the governor has... Uh, a responsibility, a duty to protect his own citizens. And if what the federal government does, in the opinion of the governor, is put those citizens at risk from a, a communicable disease and, and thus require him to take these steps, even assuming there's preemption, you know, does the supremacy clause allow tangential action to to preempt the governor's responsibilities to keep his citizens safe? And if not, are you trumping the supremacy clause? I mean, it's it's a it's a mess. And, and it's, you know, I'm glad I'm not on the court to try to figure out how to untangle this Gordian knot. Uh, Let's start by breaking down those two concepts. OK, because the U.S. Constitution does have Article six, clause two which says the Constitution and treaties are the supreme law of the land. So that's where the idea of the Supremacy Clause comes from. The Constitution says that there's a hierarchy, and the U.S. Constitution and laws made pursuant to that Constitution take priority over state laws. However, within the United States, we have dual sovereigns because states have power also. So the courts have come up with this doctrine, which you just mentioned, the preemption doctrine, which is that if the federal government has lawfully acted in a certain area, and you're right, I don't know the exact word, but essentially that they've enacted to such a large manner that they rule that area. They have preempted the states from doing anything. If they've left it open, they've only regulated part of that subject matter, then the states can regulate the rest of it through law. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, and when, they, when in the second instance, they cannot contradict what the federal government has done, but there, if, if the federal government hasn't uh, regulated a certain area or in a certain fashion, then the states are free to do so, is my understanding of, of how it works. So now the interesting thing about this is that Abbott's position, I, I believe, and I haven't seen a response to the lawsuit yet, but just from his letter, I think his position is that I'm not arguing, is that I, Abbott, I'm not trying to affect any interstate rights or anything outside the boundaries of Texas. But as governor, I can impose certain regulations, certain limits on people's travel for public health reasons. 
And we've kind of seen that in a lot of states, including North Carolina, through this pandemic, where that's that's kind of the legal basis for the lockdown. So Governor Abbott's trying to kind of use something similar in Texas as his legal basis to say that we're going to intercept people who are moving about the state who likely or possibly or might have COVID, and we're going to return them to the port of entry. That's right. And you you were analogizing it earlier when we were talking about it to a governor's uh, authority and um, sort of typical response to natural disasters, such as a hurricane or tornado, to impose a a lockdown uh, in order to protect uh, lives and property in that instance. In this instance, it would be lives. You know, that seems to me a pretty pretty strong argument. Um, I think... uh, Governor Abbott, and I don't know whether it was the Attorney General of the state of Texas or someone else, but someone has has helped him fashion this executive order in a narrow way with a clearly stated goal that is um, appropriate for the governor of a state to have. Now, I guess you can argue about whether or not this executive order actually accomplishes that goal and whether it's there are other ways to accomplish that goal and so forth. But clearly the governors of our states are uh, allowed and, and, as I said earlier, obligated to uh, to act to protect their citizens and their populations from public health uh, threats. And, and so I, I think the governor has gotten good advice uh, with regard to his stated uh, reasons and his goals in enacting this executive order. Yeah, what's interesting is how quickly all of this has played out. So there was that exchange of letters between the governor and the attorney general. Well, then the the U.S. Department of Justice filed a lawsuit in the um, federal district court in El Paso, which is, is on the border with Texas. Yesterday, they had a hearing. The government asked for a TRO, which is a temporary restraining order which is a short-term measure that would restrict Texas from applying that law while an additional hearing is held. The judge, just within the last hour of of us recording, granted a TRO until the 13th of August. So some 10 days, I saw where Congressman Chip Roy has been extremely vocal in his um, uh, public statements and comments with regard to uh, this this issue between um, the DOJ and and the state of Texas, the folks in Texas are fed up with this constant um, influx of folks uh, across their border. And there, I mean, I saw a video this morning. I'm sure you saw it too. Probably 150, 200 people at at some border location. They come in. They immediately just sit down and wait for the border patrol to come get them. Uh, and they're coughing and sneezing and everything else. They're not wearing masks. Um, you and I are supposed to wear masks in certain places, um, and uh, the folks in New York City are going to be obligated to get vaccines if they work or, uh, or patronize indoor restaurants, indoor fitness facilities, or uh, indoor entertainment venues. But these folks who have no legal right whatsoever to be here come across our border, and COVID is not an issue for them. One wonders if if our government is um, really and truly worried about COVID. Well, the underlying problem is that the, um, and we've mentioned it before, the Biden border crisis continues. 
Uh, I don't see the vice president's done anything to solve root causes or immediate problems, but people are streaming across the border. And I actually have uh, a website open from uh, CBP uh, with total enforcement actions. Total enforcement actions in fiscal year 17 was 526,000. It rose to fiscal year 19 with a little over a million. Well, just to June of this year, it's 1.2 million, almost 1.3 million enforcement actions. Uh, and that's the number of people they're running into at the border. And that doesn't even include the ones who are coming across the border that they don't find, that they don't touch, that they don't know anything about. Right. The ones that are successful. And then uh, didn't I see where it's 70 percent or so of the people who are caught who are then released into our, our nation and given a court date and told to report to this place and this time for your hearing, never show up. The notion of a court date to decide whether they should stay is is a joke. Uh, it's not well, but happen. let's talk about why they're even getting a court date, because traditionally people might be held at the border. The Biden administration's position is we're just going to expedite this because they're overwhelmed, frankly. But, you know, if they've got family or friends They'll just send them on a bus to some other part of the country where they can be with their family or friends. And, uh, you know, they're giving them a court date to resolve their claim. And that's it. They're not being held. So why should they ever come back to court? Right. And they have no incentive to come back to court. I mean, the chances of I mean, there's a there's a chance that they'll be sent home if they come back. Um, And the Biden administration uh, is. I mean, they're not deporting people even when they get charged with crimes or convicted, as I understand it. Um, and I was talking to a friend today about the Biden DOJ, and uh, he told me that the Biden DOJ is not taking uh, gun violations federal. In addition to not prosecuting the immigration stuff, they're not they're not prosecuting the gun crimes. Of course, they want to take our guns away. Uh, to, from you and I, but if you go commit a crime with a gun as a felon, they they let the state authorities handle that, whereas the Trump folks were taking those cases federal and, and giving people federal time. So it's just another instance of the liberal Democrats not enforcing the laws as they're written. You know, the oath that the president took is to take care to ensure that the laws will be faithfully executed. And he's ignoring the immigration laws. I'm not sure how you you square that with the, with his oath. I really don't. Well, I don't know how you do either. And, and frankly, it's also it's a practical issue. And we talked several episodes ago about crime and that the Biden administration's position seemed to be let's crack down on gun dealers. Um, and if they're breaking the law, maybe you should. Right. But they're blaming guns for it. And one thing we talked about then was that as a practical matter in the past, federal administrations through Project Exile and other initiatives had gone after the fairly small number of people in a community often who were committing a significant amount of violent crime. And they did that by using federal law, which makes possession of a firearm by a felon, you know, a minimum sentence. And they took them off the street. And and it works. You put the bad people in jail. Crime goes down, there's a message sent, and you deter others. Simple. Common sense. And and just, you know, what's the difference between uh, federal uh, conviction and a state conviction? 
deficit spending because the feds will lock people up and they'll stay locked up for a long time and states just can't afford to do that. And the feds can selectively pick and choose the cases that they take. And, and so they, you know, if it's a bad case, they don't take it. And, you know, and so when you get charged federally, you're, you're generally uh, up the creek without a paddle. You know, the, the minimum sentence is, is substantial. And, you know, when you're sentenced in federal court, you serve that time. Um, I mean, they have probation and stuff, but it's not a question of you get so many years in prison and that boils down to X number of months because of overcrowding in that particular state. So to kind of wrap this segment up, I guess, is that, you know, Texas governor is trying to do something because the border is out of control. Uh, there'll be another hearing in 10 days. By that point, the attorney general of Texas may have filed a response to the federal lawsuit and we'll have more to report on then. I'm sure we will. Well, what's on your radar for the next week, Lee? Um, I guess a, a couple of things that I sort of, broke today that I don't think got the play that, 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 that they should have. Um, first, there was an attack on a civilian policeman from the Pentagon at the Pentagon metro station this morning. He was stabbed, ultimately killed, and then the perpetrator was shot and killed by law enforcement. And and as a result, the, the, the actual Pentagon itself was shut down for a short period of time. That has not gotten much in the way of media attention, and so we don't know anything about the perpetrator as to motive or uh, intent. Um, we certainly don't know anything about this officer who was killed in the line of duty, um, but I think that's very uh, interesting. There was also, um, I think yesterday or perhaps over the weekend, there was a, f a family, a husband and a wife, who were arrested by Capitol Police at the Capitol for possession of firearms and ammunition without a license in D.C. Supposedly, this, this guy goes up to two Capitol Police officers to ask for directions. One of the officers notices the butt of a pistol uh, sort of sticking out of his pocket, and they arrest him, and he says, oh, well, you need to know that my wife is down there by the Capitol proper, and she's got a gun, too. And so they go and arrest her as well, and she had a uh, some sort of firearm and then a, a, a magazine which was above whatever the limit is in D.C. And, of course, in D.C., you have to have uh, pistols have to be licensed, and they weren't licensed, and then they had ammunition, and they has to be licensed, and they weren't because they were from out of state. And some some people are speculating, was, was that somehow related to this incident at the Pentagon Metro Station this morning? Probably not, but who knows? So that's out there. And then I don't know if you saw, and I, I haven't seen it since earlier today, and then I got busy and I didn't have a chance to check it, but there are four tankers in relative close proximity in the uh, Persian Gulf that called in, for lack of a better word, on the radio to authorities and, and, and said, and I forget the term of art, but basically it means we're broken down and we're not moving. And, and then they began to move and the British, um, and the, um, I think it was the UAE governments and the Royal Navy and the UAE folks were checking them out. But the fear and the theory was that they had been hijacked and these were oil tankers. Of course, the speculation was that the Iranians were behind this. The Iranians denied it and said, no, we're here to help. 
we get blamed for everything, but it's not us. And I haven't heard any more about that. But, you know, four oil tankers hijacked in, at one time in close proximity um, is somewhat uh, cause for concern, especially when the Biden administration is bound and determined to basically give whatever they can in terms of economic help and removing sanctions and whatnot to the Iranian mullahs and bring them uh, into the community of nations, even though by their conduct they they show that they don't really want to be uh, a reasonable and neighborly sort. No, you know, I think that actually – I think that the Biden administration's intent is they want to deal so badly with Iran regarding nuclear production that they'll just do anything for it. That's, That's their right. priority. They'll they'll ignore bad behavior. They'll accept anything because they want to say we made a deal when and, and Trump threw out And they don't care what the deal game. looks like. It's it's having a deal. And and the Iranians are smart folks, and they're going to take advantage of that. And I had not heard about the tankers, but there was an attack earlier this week, which uh, the U.S. and the U.K. have blamed on Iran, and that was um, some uh, cargo ship in the Persian Gulf. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of on the radar. Um, I also note that the Maricopa County, Arizona, the Board of Elections folks um, from the county um, have sort of thumbed their nose at a subpoena from the Arizona legislature with regard to documents needed for the audit uh, with with regard to the 2020, November 2020 election. And um, there's much speculation about how how one can ignore a subpoena and, and get it, get away with it. Well, but, I think the answer is you just ignore it until somebody does something about it. Yeah. So there's that. And, uh, and then the Cuomo thing, I find that, um, you know, wow. Um, I think the proper term would be internecine warfare in the New York state Democrat party. Um, you know, you bring the popcorn sit back and, and watch that as it plays out, because that is going to uh, go on for a while, I believe. And did you see uh, sort of the last thing, um, the young lady that apparently won a gold medal, not apparently, she won a gold medal in women's wrestling. I didn't even know there was such a thing. She's from the United States, and it happened earlier today, and they interviewed her before she got her medal. And she wrapped herself in the flag, and she talked about how much she loved this country, and she loved that flag, and she loved living here, and how great it was. And I thought, wow. You know, it's it's a shame that that's become rare and unusual, but it's also refreshing to see, to see that. And it was pure unbridled joy. And she's the first person of African descent to win a medal in women's wrestling, I think. I think that's the way they say it. Um, so, and I forget her name, but I didn't know this either, but the U.S. Olympic Committee gives every athlete from our country that wins a gold medal $37,500. And they asked her what she was going to do with that money, and she said well, she was going to give $30,000 of it to her mother because her mother had always wanted to have a food truck business, and that would allow her to purchase uh, what she needed to have a food truck. And um, she was going to do that for her mom. I just thought, you know, we need more stories like that, more positive things. Well, that is great. I had not seen that. Um, I, I, I will say, I just as you were talking, I just pulled up a 
you know, I, I used the magic box and found Team USA's Tamira Mensa stock. I hope I pronounced that. That's her correctly. Or that she becomes uh, <laughs> Tamira Mensa stock becomes first black woman to win gold in wrestling. That's the headline at thehill.com. So that is a great story. Congratulations to her. And find that and, on the, uh, uh, that interview with her. There's several versions out there. One's about 40 seconds long, and one's a couple minutes long. But it's it's it, it, I mean, she is just. Uh, we will find that, and if you follow us on Twitter or go to our Twitter account, then you can watch that interview, too. We'll make that available. Great. So what's on your, your radar screen? Well, you know, I guess there are two things that, that I've kind of been looking at, because we talked a few weeks ago about the refugees, uh, the interpreters, translators, other people that helped us in Afghanistan, and the first flight of them actually landed in the U.S. earlier in this the week. It's called Operation Allies Refuge, and they built special housing for them at Fort Lee in Virginia. So that's supposed to be the first of many, but I understand that that program is troubled, and that may be a polite word for it. And on top of that, the individuals that we should be getting out of the country are now living in an area where basically 50% of the country has already fallen to the Taliban and they have to get to an American station with papers showing that they cooperated with the U.S. to be allowed to, to leave. So a very difficult situation, but we're continuing to watch that. The, the other thing is that this Friday and then next Monday are the anniversaries of the atomic bombings in Japan that ended World War II. 76 years ago. And a little historical note there. If I'm not mistaken, Friday's also Barack Obama's 60th birthday. I believe it is. Are you going to the party? I'm not, but uh, it's interesting to note that 700 people will be there, among whom are Oprah, George Clooney, and uh, others. And uh, COVID is is not invited. There's no risk of getting COVID there. It certainly would not be a super spreader event in any way, shape, manner, or form. You know, he has a COVID coordinator for the party. I did not know that. Dr. Fauci? No, it is, that is actually apparently a thing now. It is a budding career field that you can be a COVID coordinator for large events. And it's your responsibility, I guess, to go around and poke people in the back and tell them to get the mask back over the end of their nose. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to look into that. How hard could it be? I don't know. You may have to have a PhD for that. Oh, well, then I'm, I'm, I'm sort of out of the loop. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Let's Think About That podcast. You can contact us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe on your podcast provider and leave us a review and tell your friends. 